Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. It's good to be back with everyone after a couple weeks off while Drew and I had our programs on the road for the first few uh, tournaments of the season for Haverford and UMBC and just the craziness of, um, you know, recruitment season and, and getting ready to go. Thanks again to Elizabeth Bays for joining us recently for an awesome episode. We've heard a lot of great feedback about the things that she had to say. She was a really interesting person to talk to, so we really appreciated her uh, taking some time before the start of the season. Uh, Drew, you guys have been on the road a couple times this season. You know, how are you feeling so far as, you know, in terms of what you're seeing at tournaments and, you know, how things are going? Yeah, um, Haverford, I'm really pleased with how we've been doing, um, you know, obviously is one of those still pretty young programs. Uh, just getting to go to a lot of these really top tournaments has been a privilege for us and um, definitely pleased with how we've done. Um, one thing I've been really pleased with just seeing it at Invitationals so far has been not just the quality, but the quantity of judges. Um, from what I know, Ben, obviously you hosted the wonderful Charm City Classic in which they had three judges, um, but also Colonial Classic hosted by William & Mary had three judges. And GW, while their, uh, their report, and they only I essentially guaranteed two judges around, uh, I had three in all of my rounds, and I saw three judges going to most rooms. So definitely pleased to see a lot of these early tournaments showing not just good judges, but um, a high quantity of them and getting a lot of early feedback for teams is really, really helpful for sure um, and very encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with that. I, the reason that I pushed so hard to have three judges at, at Charm City, three scoring judges, I should say, is I, yeah, I mean, think about how much we've talked, even just the few episodes we've done so far about the the challenges of judging and mock trial and the randomness of judging and mock trial and, you know, geographic stuff and things like that. And having three instead of two, it just makes such a huge difference. Like it doesn't get rid of that, right? Like you're always going to have those concerns of weird judging and, you know, strange geographical preferences and things like that. But having a third, you know, I, I think having two, scoring judges who are not presiding so it's like even if the presider does some weird things and that might impact one of the other scorers you always have the possibility you know a higher chance of getting a scorer who understands like okay you know here's what's going on and, and things like that so i'm really encouraged by that too we were at um william and mary at the colonial classic this past weekend which is just a stellar tournament we've been three years in a row now and they do such an awesome job and having three scoring judges in every round you know, like it just makes you feel more confident that, you know, you're going to get results that are helpful to you. And even if you, you know, you lose all three, which we certainly did some, like you still, you get good information and it gives you something where like, even if you lose those ballots, it's like, okay, well, if all three judges agree that, you know, we're not doing the right thing here, well, that's helpful for us as we continue to evaluate, you know, what to do moving forward. Right. No, I think that that's really, really true. I mean, even just getting three different judges, and I've had rounds now where two of the judges feel one way, one judge feels the other, and it, it's just telling because we obviously, yeah, judges rarely agree on things, but having a larger sample size definitely allows us to figure out what works most of the time um, and what can be the most consistently scoring well. It was actually... Very cool to me. Um, I just want to go back to the GW tournament and shout out Kyle West for a second. Um, I thought it was really, really cool that 
even when they had the presiding judge not scoring, they often gave them uh, comment ballots. And I really, really appreciated that because I love looking at comments. I want to hear what those judges had to say. And frankly, at a lot of these early invitationals, scores are helpful for contextualizing the comments. But just being able to get a copy and have something to look back on as far as what did this person think of the round, particularly of a presiding judge, um, I found really, really beneficial. And I think that oftentimes we kind of just say, oh, they're not scoring. We don't really care about them, but I care. And I appreciated that they were doing that. And that was definitely encouraging to see. Um, ben, one thing I, I wanted to also get around to is the the fact that while a lot of these early tournaments, obviously teams are often unstacked and it may not necessarily be the same team that's going to be going to regionals or orcs or nationals. There were definitely some interesting trends uh, just looking at these first couple of tournaments. I thought that, you know, at, at your own tournament at, at Charm City, we saw Howard taking first and third. Um, that's obviously a really, really strong showing from them. Uh, and the really interesting interaction I saw with them was with Patrick Henry in that I, if I'm not if I'm not wrong, I think that Howard ended up sweeping Patrick Henry in a, a couple of rounds at Charm City. And then the next weekend at GW, Patrick Henry turned around and got first and second at GW. And I think that they had a round where they swept Howard. So it's, it's kind of shoes on the other foot. Um, definitely an interesting interaction between those two DC powerhouses. Yeah. It, it, you know, and like you said, obviously like the, the, obvious caveat is obvious that like this is early like super early and so so many of these teams are unstacked and they've got new people in there um but man howard is good you know like they're good every year and you know angela minor does an amazing job with that program and you gotta think you know you and i were talking about this earlier you gotta think one of these years i mean they did great at nationals last year and one of these years they've got like a run close to or to the final round in them. Cause I mean, we hit them. I mean, I'm sure you guys too all the time. And um, it's not fun. You know, they're just, no, it's not, it, it, but it's like, it's not fun, but it is right. Because it's like, it's a great round no matter what, like, yeah, you might get beat, you know, a lot of the time, <laughs> but you know, they're, they're the friendliest, nicest people and yep. they're so good. Um, and so it's definitely, you know, I'm excited to see them progress throughout the season. And Patrick Henry's the same, right? Same way, right? Like they're, always friendly and always nice. And then they're always really, really good. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, the reality is you and I both compete on the East coast. And so it's going to be harder for us to get exposure to, you know, some of those West coast teams um, that are so good. And we're going to work on getting guests and stuff like that for, for that. But for these early season East coast tournaments to see Howard and Patrick Henry looking as strong as they are, it's not surprising, but it's interesting. Yeah. And it, it particularly with the, uh with Nationals being on the East Coast and meaning that we're losing the Lancaster Orcs, I'd be lying if I said that I'm not starting to think about, like, oh, no, what's going to happen? We're going to be all clustered in the same tournament together, and it's uh, not going to be fun. But uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I will also say that just to look at some of the other, just some of the bigger results that we've seen, um, Miami going 16-0 and at Case Western, that's has to be taken note of. I mean, they're the defending national champions and showing that they're kicking the, the year off on the right foot. Uh, and I thought it was particularly interesting just because Miami graduated as many seniors as they did off that A team. And I think that, you know, just the fact that they're showing that that's not going to stop them uh, definitely 
makes Miami a team to be on the lookout for the rest of the year for sure. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, you know, like the 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 good programs, you know, usually start out the year well even when they're unstacked. You know, you had, you know, we we were at Cubate for the first time this year and NYU won Cubate and that's that's no particular surprise, right? It's NYU. But you know, you you roll into a team presumably either with two unstacked teams or an A and a B, you know, where the B presumably has got some, some younger people on it. And then to go 16 and O at a very good tournament I mean, go 16 and O at any tournament is, is an impressive accomplishment, you know, and to go 16 and O at a strong tournament early in the year, it, you know, I mean, look, obviously Miami is in the conversation every year, right? Like you're never, most likely at least going to have a year where, you know, in the foreseeable future where we're not, you know, doing this thing at nationals, wondering if Miami's going to make a run. But, you know, the last, you think like the last couple years before this past year have kind of been dominated by Yale and UVA to varying degrees. And you wonder if Miami and, you know, some of these other programs, I mean, you wonder if someone's going to break into that mold, into that like, you know, like really, really top elite group of just a few teams that, you know, every year for the next couple of years, you have to worry about making a run towards the national final. No, I, I totally agree. And it's, it really is interesting, as you point out. I mean, we've kind of come to expect certain teams should just always be really, really good. And I think that it's, it's something where it's tough because especially this early in the year when we're talking about teams being um, unstacked, I mean, most of these programs do some sort of unstacked process during the year. And the fact that they're still as good as they are, I mean, I'll tell you, it it it, it makes it seem tough. But, uh, you know, I think that the the important thing for sure is just to to note that one of the things that I think continues to be really cool about Mock Trial is that even though these teams are as good as they are, you know, sometimes you get a random judge and you know, maybe you end up taking a ballot you shouldn't have, but, you know, sometimes new teams rise and powerful teams fall. And it's, it's, you know, it's a steep battle to go up for sure, but hopefully we'll continue to see new teams crop up. I will always have a soft spot in my heart for new programs um, joining the the Nationals fray. Um, And, you know, I don't think that any of those three, Miami, UVA, uh, NYU, Yale, you know, roads list them off for a while Uh, they're not going anywhere anytime soon but you know we can always hope (laughs) right yeah exactly the the rest of us can you know sit here looking up at the the perch and you know see how things are but i mean but look they they earn it you know like you say what you were like like that was what was fun for me at trump city about howard right is it's like nobody celebrates like howard does when they win and i love it because it's like you know, like I saw one or two people kind of like rolling their eyes a little bit. And I'm just like, if you don't like it, beat them, you know, like those programs, you know, they are good at what they do. And, you know, and I don't think you could really accuse any of those programs. You know, I know we talked with Elizabeth about some of the stuff with Yale, but even with that, like, you know, those are all like well run with, you know, obviously Yale doesn't do the coaching thing, but like most of them have like, you know, uh, coaches who are on the board or who are prominent people in AMTA and they just, they do it right. And, and I think that's, that's really cool. And so, you know, it'll be really interesting to see who fills in around them as the season goes on. You know, I mean, you still got like, you know, Ohio state has started the season strong. Obviously UVA started the season strong. 
um, a lot of these great programs are, are up there, but, you know, I, I think this year, you know, it will be very interesting to see if, you know, if any of the usual suspects return to the final round, or if we see someone like a Miami who hadn't been there in a little while breakthrough. And what's really interesting that we were kind of just speaking to is the fact that of these, these top teams, even when a lot of people graduated, it doesn't seem to phase them. And I will say this, I, I'm not going to pretend to be deeply in tuned to Howard. I don't think that they graduated many seniors though last year. I saw a lot of familiar faces at the tournaments I saw from them, and it does not make me happy to, to see as many of them back as, well, it does make me happy. They're wonderful people, but man, it, it means that they're just going to be that much tougher this year. I will say that of those top teams we've been talking about, uh, as much as I I love and admire Yale, I got to say that they are the one that has not started the season off quite as strong as, as people would expect, uh, getting going 2-4-2 and two at GW and then 3-4-1 and one at Cubate. It's not to say that these are horrible showings, but there's definitely room for improvement from you know someone that's been to the national final round four years in a row. Um, and I, I think that I'm not going to pretend to have a reason why that isn't happening. I'm sure that by the time regionals rolls around, ELC is going to be a terrifying team to have to face, and I have no desire to play any team from Yale at any time. But it definitely is interesting to, to see early on them struggling, and, and we can speculate as to why. The The only thing that I would say that, that does interest me about it is that we do notice throughout the year that Yale has this really steep improvement when you get around to AMTA tournaments and particularly around nationals. And to me, my my large speculation that I'm going to make on this and it's probably completely wrong, but it's just what I'm going to claim is maybe a reason why. And I hope that Elizabeth and all of her Yale comrades eviscerate me in comments about this. But I really think that when you have a coach, you know, obviously Harvard does not have a, a you know coach that attends every practice that's able to help us out in that way. But when you have a coach, to me, that provides some stability year after year on the educational portion of mock trial. And when you're student run and you have students that are leading practices that are teaching rules of evidence and new things about mock trial, there's a learning curve. It takes them a little bit longer to get up to that same pace. And I just think that when you're, uh, I, I do think that there's something to be said about these teams that have massive coaching staffs that are good at what they do. You know, they're able to get new people up to speed that much quicker because they, they've been doing it for a while. I mean, frankly, when when you have someone that's a really great student teacher and they graduate, you have to find someone else to do it the next year. But when you have a great coach that's been coaching for 20 years, you know, they, they know what they're doing at that point. You get to have that same person coach every person every year. And that type of just stability, I think, can really contribute to early success. And again, of course, when you get down the road, you know, they're all going to be at a pretty level field and in fact, you'll often beats, well, they do beat all those teams. But uh, it is interesting to look at at the early stages how they've not been doing quite as well. Yeah, I, all that is really interesting. And we um, had the the pleasure of facing Yale in round four at Cubate. Um, and it was definitely not a, a stacked team. Elizabeth was there, I think, sort of coaching slash observing. And I recognized a couple of faces on the on the team uh, from teams I judged or seen or things like that. And, you know, it was, it was a very interesting, like you could tell they were young, 
right? But they were still really, really good. And and I, I you know, your coach's theory is an interesting one. And like, right, obviously, I'm I'm biased. I'm I'm a coach, and I think that there's a <laughs> lot of value in having a coach for you know that educational purpose. Um, but I definitely think like you know, I mean, they they graduated some people. They've they've had such success over the last few years. Like, I and we can get into this in our case thoughts, but my guess would be that they like many people are still feeling out like how they want to approach this case and like you know how does yale have that you know extreme success obviously they're always incredibly talented advocates but they have really creative unique approaches to the case and you know i have a theory related to this year's case that teams the feeling out period is taking a little bit longer than maybe it would typically uh, for a couple of reasons. And so I think I wouldn't be shocked if that's part of it is that they're just still bringing in some younger people and then figuring out what they want to do with this case. But in either scenario, you know, I, I agree with you that, that, you know, come January and February, like, you know, if the pairings come out and you're facing Yale, like I'm, I'm not going to be sitting comfortably in my chair. <laughs> yeah. And again, I do want to reiterate that I come from a non-coached program. I'm proud to not come from a to for Habford to be that way. I stand by that. You know, teams that are not coached can do just as well as teams that are coached. And I think that coming up to season, exactly as you just said, there's nothing that holds a, a an uncoached team back. Um, I will I will say that I I'm really intrigued by this, and I'm the 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 point you made though about about this learning curve, I think is really interesting. And in, in this case specifically, um, just when we look at this case, it's to me pretty different just because of the counterclaim. And I think that it's something that's pretty unusual for us, but the defense is also in a way just another plaintiff. And as a result, there's a lot less, in my mind, creativity so far. I think that the defense is pretty pigeonholed as far as what they're going to do. And I think that, you know, we had Michael Gelfand on recently, but one of the things that the case writers decided to do this year was they have those lines towards the end of that deposition that are pretty closing down on the witnesses as far as like, I do not think there were any other things that could have affected Elias, or I don't think there were any other things that, you know, were relevant to the case um, in the case of Alex Grace they have these lines that are pretty confining and are making it harder for teams to come up with these crazy case theories. I'm, I say that now. I hope to be proven wrong in a couple of months. I'm excited to see the wacky case theories coming up. Uh, I'm sure that they are going to be fun and out there, and I look forward to seeing them. But I will, I will proudly state that I have not come up with anything that I've really felt satisfied with, and I haven't seen anything that I was really, really shocked by. So I agree with you completely. I think like, you know, sort of moving into the, the thinking about the case itself, I've now, so I was at Cubate and then um, I was at, uh, where have I been? It's, it's been a long <laughs> couple, oh, right, Charm City. I got to watch a little bit. And then um, we were just at William and Mary. And um, I think what I have seen is a lot of like trying to, like I think a lot of teams are, like trying to run case theories that will be successful, but nothing crazy. And like hoping to hit other teams that are trying crazy things to like kind of <laughs> see how it's going. 
And I also do think we're right about at the time where we start to see that stuff, right? Is it's like you go through a couple tournaments and you're like, okay, this will work. I know it will work. I can put it in my back pocket and wait, you know, at least until, you know, December case changes blow it up. Um, But like, okay, now let's implement that like kind of risky or like borderline invention type theory. Um, So I will be very interested to see. So I'm at Duke this weekend. uh, And, you know, and then obviously your tournament's the weekend after that. And there's so many great teams coming to that tournament. And I wonder if we're right about at the time where things are going to start to open up a little bit. Cause I think your, your theory about the counterclaim is 100% true. I think that when you essentially have dueling plaintiffs and both sides are fighting for the opportunity to eventually do a damages trial, you don't get some of those defense theories that are kind of just like, you know, like the shrug emoji, right? Like you have to go on the offensive a little bit. And if you have to go on the offensive a little bit, your case has to make a little more sense, you know? And some of those defense cases that you see from these great teams that like, if you stop and kind of hold it up to the light of common sense, you're like that, that doesn't make any sense at all, but they can pull off like a competent mock trial case. Right. But I think that's harder this year. No, it, it's really true. And uh, just to address the, the tournaments. Yeah. I, so far I've only personally been at um, GW's tournament, the Hebeus Hippopotamus. Awesome name, by the way. Um, but uh Haverford has been to uh, obviously charm city with Ben and then, um, GW and then Colonial Classic as well as Rochester's tournament. Uh, and then we have, we'll be at Tufts. Uh, I will obviously be tournament directing at our own tournament, Black Squirrel. And then um, I'm wrapping up the year at Gamty, which I'm obviously very, very excited to be going to. And I'm hoping that come December, facing, you know, probably one of the best fields that there are as far as invitationals go, I'm hoping that by then someone will have something really clever that I can watch and enjoy and take a little bit back home with me so very looking forward to that yeah i i'm i'm in the same boat where it's like I, so like i said i'm at duke this coming weekend which i'm always duke runs a great tournament it's a beautiful courthouse very excited for that then we're coming to haverford weekend after that i'll be on the road with our our c team was sort of stacking for the first time it's the first time we've ever had one we're taking them to rutgers um i'll have a weekend off for the first time in <laughs> seven weekends what's that and then Right. Yeah, exactly. It's something that apparently two people who host a mock trial podcast in their spare time don't understand a lot about. Um, Thanksgiving break. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I'll also, you know, we're fortunate that we get to go to Gamte this year as well. And so I'll, I'll be there and really looking forward to that field. We'll have a team at Yale. Um, and so I think, first of all, like, I, I do want to say like, and, and this isn't something that you and I have talked about beforehand, but I'm really happy this year with like the quantity and quality of tournaments in our region. Now, obviously the East coast is kind of a hotbed, but like there are so many awesome programs. I mean, GW is such a great program, right? And they hosted a phenomenal tournament. And like, it's really cool to me that so many of these great programs, you think like a program like American that hosted a great tournament for years and is now hosting a regional and has for a couple of years and Richmond who hosted their regional for several years is now hosting an orcs. And like you have these great programs that are hosting these tournaments and so many of these new ones are cropping up. And I, I definitely like what Will was saying a couple episodes ago, like people should host for AMTA. Like I 1000% endorse that, but like keep doing this with invitationals too. Like we, like the more invitationals there are, the more young teams get to compete, the more people get opportunities to get out there and do things. And I think like 
I'm just, you know, I mean, I've been able to be on the road as much as I have been this fall because so many great programs have stepped up and said, we're also going to take on the responsibility of hosting an invitational. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with that point. I'm, I'm so pleased to see so many new tournaments happening. Uh, I know that uh, LaSalle, um, just because they're right by us, we actually weren't able to end up going, but LaSalle hosted a tournament for the first time, and they're a very strong program, and I love seeing more tournaments in Philadelphia. Um, it's always nice to have a couple nearby. Um, but it's no, it's a really great point. I think that hopefully as more invitational hosts, that creates more regional hosts, and hopefully EMTA can continue to address the our growth problem. And it's, it's a good problem to have, frankly. I think that mock trial is a fun activity and more people doing it is definitely a good thing. I, I totally agree with that. And, and along the lines of, of the case that, you know, we were talking about sort of switching back to that for just a minute. Um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting, right? So, so, you know, looking, obviously we don't have access to like the official statistics, but looking at the stuff on perjuries um, that people have been doing, um, it looks like things have been running pretty balanced so far. And that's that, you know, that's what we've seen. But um, one of the posters on perjuries calculated, and, and we haven't independently verified this, but I'm pretty sure it's right, that we're seeing in top rounds, which my understanding, I think is they're calculating is like teams with like five or more ballots. Um, and I think in a round four round is like the, the teams that are doing particularly well at a tournament that face each other in the, in the uh, power constrained rounds, that we're seeing a pretty heavy defense bias in the top rounds so far. And I was curious if you had any thoughts, Drew, on like this is such an interesting issue, right? Because you you don't want that to be there because you don't want it's like it shows you, okay, when you have two elite teams or two great teams, like maybe this favors the defense, but the overall case balance is not an issue. And so it's like, do you how much do you correct that and do you risk, you know, messing up the overall balance in favor of just the top rounds balance? And then where even is that coming from? Yeah, no, it is a great point. And the, the exact numbers for people that don't have access to perjuries or don't know what perjuries is, uh, the statistics were 62% D siding and, and 39%, 38% uh, P side um, in those top rounds, which is a very, very big difference. Um, and yeah, I think that you bring up this great point, Ben, that we we're all using the same case. So we can't fix it just for the top teams. Um, and, you know, you don't want to make it really, really P-sided just to, like, eliminate that issue at the top level. But at the same time, you don't want this weird thing where, like, when top teams are facing each other, like, oh, no, we're on plaintiff. It's basically a loss. This team has an unbeatable defense. Um, frankly, I, I don't know what is causing it. I, I'm a little bit surprised that it's so different at those top rounds. I like to believe that we've been seeing some of those rounds and I, I haven't seen any, as we said before, I haven't seen any crazy unstoppable theories. Um, we haven't gotten to the Morgan Mickey did it um, theories of last year. Um, but uh, I'm maybe we've missed it. You know, we're only two people. Maybe there've been some really amazing defense theories that we've been missing. I, I will say, and I, I hesitate to, to to talk about this too, too much, but I will say that I think just based on the merits of the case, there are certain facts that are really, really good for the defense. And one of those is just the, the reaching out. And I think that to a certain point, you're, when you're able to make a direct tie of, oh, this person reached out 
And directly following that, the chimpanzee ran off. That type of tie is a really easy point to explain to a jury. And I think that one thing that I am speculating again is that it's possible that it's hard to explain all this training. It's very experty, and it's it's a little bit harder to comprehend than this was a fine trained animal. It's just that this person tried to touch them, and I, I think that one of the things that we talked about before is like when we're thinking about December case balance. I I'm curious to see if they do anything to lessen that blow. It's just really really damning evidence in my mind against Alex Grace and the plaintiff. I I don't really know how much fight you can give on it when every other person in attendance is like, yeah, no, they reached out towards that chimp. Um, so I don't know. I I definitely agree with that. And I think the point you, you, you were really onto something in the middle there that it's digestible, right? So like, it's, it's a good fact for the defense, but there are lots of good facts for both sides in this case. But it is so like, it is like an independent, tangible, easy to explain thing where it's like when you get your like judge who's sort of half paying attention you know like you can get them to catch on to this a little bit easier and look you and i like i mean our programs have done you know pretty well but like there are many many great programs out there who i'm sure have solved all kinds of problems that we haven't but i definitely agree that it's very interesting to me that the defense when, when, you know, defenses historically as the season goes on get stronger, you know, as the case tends to move in the direction of the defense as the season goes on, that, um, you know, that they're the side that has been given sort of this tangible fact. Now, I know with the counterclaim, right, like, you know, they're technically both sides have, you know, both sides of the case, but the the mock trial world is what it is. There's no rebuttal witnesses. So like one side is still, you know, the judges are going to think of that side as the side without the burden, even if they do have one. And so when you're in this world of, you know, you only have a, a finite number of minutes to get in these concepts, something like that, as opposed to, like you said, like the intricacies of the training, not that they're like crazy complicated, right? But it's still just more difficult to explain those things. And I, I would guess that the best teams are, are doing a lot of really creative things, but that the best teams on the defense are doing like, you know, like with, I don't want to, I think we're both a little hesitant to get too far into the weeds of strategy, obviously, but like we played a very good team at a recent tournament and they used the reach heavily and they talked a lot about like it being a provocation, right? And they used the word provoke a lot. And I thought that was really effective, even though I thought we did a nice job fighting it, like it's just hard to push back on that as the plaintiff with like stuff that happened earlier and stuff that's a little bit more complicated to explain and maybe lay witnesses can't really get into very far. So I will be very interested to see, you know, does that trend continue, especially in top rounds and whether or not it's something that the committee feels at the mid-trial break that they need to do something about. Yeah. And and one thing that I do think you, you pointed out, Ben, that Aside from the the facts of the cases, always kind of why I think the case can be debiased is that you go second. The bulk of your tallied points come at the later half of the trial. And what that means is that you've had more time to adjust to the judging style. You can figure out what they like and what they don't. To be frank, if you have a witness that from the plaintiff that goes that makes a couple of jokes and that judge is just not having it, maybe you tone back your characters a little bit. If you have a judge that is eating it all up, 
you tone them up a bit. You know, you, you get to kind of play test with the plaintiff's witnesses what went well and what didn't. And I think that that always has a bit of a defense. That's why we kind of always see this defense bias, at least to a little bit. And I think particularly in those top rounds, because good teams exploit that. Good teams know that they can take advantage of that and that they need to be paying attention to what that judge likes and doing their best to to score well from that point. Um, I, I definitely think that when we, if we are like kind of looking forward to these December case changes and and getting into the minds of of that committee, I, I will say that I think there are definitely facts that the plaintiff has that that can be uh, also can be lessened or or maybe strengthened. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of fun to talk about. I've always thought that you know if if maybe they don't change the, the reaching out and they want to give the plaintiff a better point, I think that if they tightened up that that training, to me it is just ridiculous that anyone could claim to train a chimpanzee in eight hours. And I don't know, I would love to really see some tightening up around that fact and maybe you know force Danny Kozak to say, no, I, I spent literally eight hours and I did not spend another second working with Elias in preparation for this trick. It would sound just absolutely ludicrous, but uh, I do think that Things like that, there are definitely there's room to to help the plaintiff out a little bit, um, and particularly on those crosses, just to make those uh, those points a little bit weaker. Yeah, I, I think that's a good observation as well, and I think there's probably a lot of other you know nuanced things that like look, I've been really happy with the case so far this season, you know, and I'm not just <laughs> saying that because Gelf listens to the podcast. Like, you know, I genuinely have enjoyed. Like, I think the, you know, people who have had me as a judge or, you know, had me as a coach know that I love world building and I love the notion of like, you know, bringing the jury into whatever world the case exists in. And, you know, I think there have been times in recent years where that hasn't always been that easy. And this year, like it really is, right? Like it's a really cool setting. I really loved like what Gelf said on the, on the podcast um, when we had him on about like how they tried to design characters like that's working really well in my opinion. I've seen some great character witnesses. I've seen some witnesses that I did not think would be easy to play well, but the like the really like when we played Yale, I won't say which witness, but they played a witness that I was very curious how anyone was going to do this witness well, and they played it exceptionally well. And I think that to me like I'm interested to see you know if any of that you know, how that develops as the season goes on, that you have these really interesting, you know, have the, just the one expert on each side and on paper, maybe the one ex, the plaintiff expert might look a little stronger than the defense expert. But we all know, right, from do, doing these cases, like what you think of as sort of gospel in October is going to look very, very different from what you think of as how to approach this thing, you know, even setting aside case changes, just, you know, changing... <coughs> changing your understanding of the case, I think this is a case that's going to evolve really well. That right now, a lot of teams are operating with a relatively surface level understanding of how to attack the nuances of this case. And I think that there's a lot of great nuance left to discover that I haven't, now that we certainly as a program haven't dug into enough. And that I think from the judges I've, from the rounds I've judged and the rounds I've watched that a lot of programs are still sort of just scraping the surface of what's in there. Yeah, one thing actually that I did want to hit on, Ben, that you, you kind of mentioned is is with having so many witnesses, 
I think one thing that is powerful for the defense is that they have so many character witnesses that actually can contribute to their case. And what I mean by that is that the reality is that all these swing witnesses, I feel like they have some bad facts about Danny Kozak and there's like all these different hearsay things they have to say, but none of them can talk about the training. None of them are going to be like, oh, this is an improperly trained animal, right? The only person that can really say that in the entire case is Hawkins. And, and the problem is that if you're the plaintiff and your case is this animal was untrained, while you can get lay people saying, yeah, they're screaming, oh, they were loud and hectic and it looked out of order. But in, as far as tangible, like what we're saying is they weren't trained properly. Here's someone telling you that. They get one witness out of six to do that. Whereas the defense, their case is about this place was a mess. This place was a zoo. Like you would not believe your eyes if you saw it. And every single witness in the case outside of those experts were either there or somewhat involved with MTS or their Harper Villafana. I mean, there's, they have some tie in to the events that day. And so when they're talking about the evidence, to me, it, it feels more tied to what the defense wants to be talk about, talking about and not what the, the, the plaintiff wants to talk about. And I, I don't think there's a way to fix that in case bias, but it's definitely an interesting aspect of a case that when it has these two very different claims, um, it's just an, it's an interesting aspect of it for sure. And that's, I think that goes to, you know, what you're saying and what I was saying and just like, there's a lot of like, I'm sure there are really creative and powerful plaintiff case theories that just are still being fleshed out and are still sort of being figured out. And I am excited to go to a lot of these great tournaments and, and see the results from a lot of the tournaments across the country and, and just see how things are going. Cause I think, I think it's going to be a very interesting season. Yeah. And I'm mostly spending most of my time right now, just getting excited, getting ready for black squirrel um, getting all of that in order. The very excited to be using the courthouse this year, and looking forward to everyone that will be joining us down there. And yeah, just you're, what do you tell people what you're doing on Friday night? I'm, I'm oh, that's yeah. really cool. It's one of the cool things that you guys are doing. Yeah. So uh, an idea that we had this year was uh, to basically do this Friday night like buy bust round. And the point of it is that uh, whether it's coaches, alumni, frankly parents, we don't really care. Whoever wants to come and, and do the case gets to do it. And if you're a team competing in our tournament, you get to bring up to six people to form a team. If you don't have six, then we'll have you join with someone else. And just kind of make a random pairing. It's not going to be – they're not going to be ballots or judges, but just a fun way to, like, do the case. And we think that it's, it's a cool opportunity, um, again, for alumni to come, for coaches to come. I, we're fortunate enough to have a lot of really top programs coming, and I – would love to see the UVA coaching core go against the Miami coaching core or something like that. I think it'd be really fun. Um, but just to get, you know, competitors to get to compete alongside their coaches or get to compete alongside some of their old alumni friends, we think it's a fun opportunity that we're hoping teams will take advantage of. Um, obviously with the being on like a Friday night, a lot of teams are getting in pretty late, so not everyone can go, which we totally understand. But we think that it's hopefully a fun thing that uh, I know that I have alumni and uh, people that would definitely get very excited if they could do it. And uh, they're excited to get to mess around with this case a little bit. So, so what you're telling me is we have to record an episode of the mock review with Ben versus Drew. Oh, I, I will have to see Ben. I think I may be a little busy that day, but Hey, if you want to 
find a way to get another That's... tournament to do it, I'll be there. <laughs> no, I obviously it's understand, but we're really excited for that and we're excited to be a black squirrel. Um, but no, I, I'm just, you know, like, look, obviously you, we host a mock trial podcast. We both do a lot of this stuff. Like we love this world, but I've, I've seen a lot of positivity this so far this season. I feel like they're like Amta's like, yeah, like a lot of the growth stuff, there are open questions on that. And we're certainly going to do episodes related to the survey and like the growth questions and stuff like that. But I feel like there's a lot of positive energy in the organization right now that, that there's a lot of great programs with great leaders and they're, you know, like, I feel like this year so far, at least I haven't seen, you know, like sometimes you watch these rounds and you don't always feel like they exist on a level playing field and some teams, you know, sort of push the rules limits and, you know, and I know we're, we're, we're far away from regionals and stuff, but I feel like the advocacy that I've seen this year in the rounds I've watched and judged and stuff has been strong and fair and honest. And, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this case, you know, hope, hopefully this this case continues that trend because I, I, those who know me and have seen me get on my soapbox about this believe that that's when mock trial really shines is when two sides do like a, a fair, honest mock trial round and then you know shake hands and and go to dinner together afterwards or something and i think this case is doing a great job so far um and amta as a whole is doing a great job so far of encouraging that attitude oh absolutely i think that the the beginning of the year is always kind of a fun time for everyone but uh it's definitely always enjoyable to be around and just to briefly address your your challenge that you laid out then i i have no desire to to face you in a round and i'm i can proudly state that as an undergraduate mock trialer, I have no desire to face someone who has gone through law school and as an actual practicing lawyer. But uh, I'll take you up on it if you face, if, if, if the challenge is laid down, I will, I will arrive. I'll get beat, but I will, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- that might've been true before Baltimore city district court taught me all my bad habits, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> yeah, but well, I think, you know, we've probably about exhausted everything we can talk about for now. Um, I know for those of you out here listening, we're, we're definitely working on having, you know, guests for future episodes. We've got some great people that we're talking to. Um, and as always, you know, if you're interested in coming on the show or if you've got a question or anything, you know, reach out to us. And, and what I, I said this to Drew is like, I love talking to people about this stuff. So if yep. you see me at any of the next couple of tournaments and you, you want to grab me in the hallway and chat for a minute, like I'm so down for that because this as you guys can tell we love talking about this stuff. So that would be awesome. Yeah. I wanted to, I want to also say that, yeah, if you see me at a tournament, I'm promise I'm nice. I love meeting new mock trialers and I love talking about this stuff. And yeah, please don't, don't be afraid to reach out. We're, we're nice people. I think hopefully (laughs) we do our best. (laughs) We're all basically nerds. Well, thanks as always. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. Like this is just a giant sort of nerd party and, and you know, it, it is what it is, but you know, we love it. So, well, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back hopefully soon with, with some interesting guests and, and some more, you know, once we get more competitive results that, that, you know, lean towards later in the season, we'll be able to break down some of those as well. Uh, so hopefully we'll be back in your podcast feed uh, very soon. Thanks as always for listening. And for now, this has been the mock review with Ben and Drew. Drew.